you do believe that aliens do exist. Yeah, that's a check. These people claim that they've been kidnapped by aliens and they've been in the flying saucers. Steal an alien ship, pencil, paperweight. There's no law against stealing from an extraterrestrial <laughs> civilization. That'll end the debate right then and there. Time travel. We realize that if you have a wormhole, there is a theory that you can go backwards in time. The Big Bang is what happens when universes collide. We live in an ocean of parallel universes. The next question you're going to ask is Elvis Presley still alive in a parallel universe? Probably yes. Belting out hit after hit according to the quantum theory. You think we're going to get to a point where with advanced medicine and technology we can live forever? I think that our grandkids will hit the age of 30 and stop the buildup of genetic and cellular mistakes. That's what aging is. With gene therapy, perhaps we can reverse that aging process. What separates us from the animals? Teach your dog the meaning of tomorrow. It's impossible. Animals live in the present. Their prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. They don't imagine the future. And that's what separates humans from animals. So my guest today is a theoretical physicist. And on top of that, if you go online, he's probably got, I don't know, maybe a billion views of him sharing his ideas. He's got one of those minds that you can't, you'll sit there, you'll say, I can watch 10 minutes of his content. Next thing you know, you're watching him for a couple hours. A beautiful mind he's got. He just came out with a recent book called The God Equation that came out on April 6th. And it's already a New York Times bestseller and an Amazon bestseller. This is his fifth bestseller. With that being said, my guest today, Dr. Michio Kaku. Doc, thanks for being a guest on Valuetainment. My pleasure. Great honor. Yeah, so, so, so tell us the idea behind writing the book, God Equation. Well, it all started when I was eight years old. A great scientist had just died, and all the papers published a picture of his desk, just his desk. And on the desk was an unfinished open book. And the caption caught my attention. It said the greatest scientists of our time could not finish this book. Well, I was, I was shocked. What? It's a homework problem. Why couldn't he ask his mother? What could be so hard that a great scientist couldn't finish it? So I went to the library mm -hmm. and I found out this man's name was Albert Einstein. And that book was to be the God equation, an equation perhaps no more than one inch long that would allow us to quote, read the mind of God. So I said to myself, wow, that's for me. That's what I want to do when <laughs> I grow up. So when I was in high school, I wanted to be part of this great revolution. So I wanted to build an atom smasher, a particle accelerator in my mom's garage. I said to my mom, mom, can I have, can I have permission to build a 2.3 million electron volt betatron accelerator in the garage? And my mom said, Sure, why not? And don't forget to take out the garbage. Well, I took out the garbage, I assembled 400 pounds of transformer steel, six kilowatts of power, and I built a Betatron accelerator in the garage. How, how old were I, you at the time? How old were you when you did that? I was 17 years old. Holy moly. And every time I plugged it in, I would blow out all the circuit breakers <laughs> in the house. My poor mom, she'd come home, all the lights would flicker and die. And she must have said, why couldn't I have a son who plays baseball? Why can't he find, why can't he play basketball? And for God's sake, why can't he find a nice Japanese girlfriend? 
why does he have to build these machines in the garage? Now you well, grew up in San Jose, right? This is San Jose when this is happening. Well, I was born in San Jose and I grew up in Palo Alto. Okay, got it. And I went to the National Science Fair where I earned the attention of a nuclear scientist, Edward Teller, who actually built the first hydrogen bomb. And so he arranged for me to get a scholarship to Harvard. So when I graduated from Harvard, he offered me a job. It was a job designing hydrogen bombs. So I said to myself, hmm, do I want to spend the rest of my life designing hydrogen warheads? So I respectfully declined his very kind, very generous offer because I wanted to work on an even bigger explosion. I wanted to work on the Big Bang, the creation of the universe, because that's what the God equation is all about. The God equation set the universe into motion, and we are all byproducts of that one equation that mesmerized my attention when I was eight years old. That's that's amazing. So eight years old is when Einstein died. By the way, I, have, I own one uh, statue that's about 150 pounds, and I take it with me everywhere I go. Every office I've been from California when we moved to Dallas to moving here, I keep it with me. It's Einstein statue. It's him smoking a pipe and it's a statue that was put together by uh i think his name is bill mack i don't know if you know bill mack he does some real good work and uh i'm a big fan of einstein as well but what i'm curious about with you is if i was in high school with you obviously i know you finished first in harvard in your physics class and you know you were the number one graduate i mean you you've been at the top everywhere but if i was 14 15 16 years old with you i'm sitting right next to you and I'm friends with you. Who was, uh, was Michio Kaku at 16 years old? Well, I had two role models when I was 16. First, of course, was to try to follow in Albert Einstein's footsteps. But second, I used to watch the old Flash Gordon series on television Saturday morning, and I was hooked. I mean, starships, aliens from other planets, ray guns, invisibility shields. And then later in life, I began to realize, hey, these two loves of my life, science fiction and theoretical physics, are really the same thing. Because if you understand deeply the laws of physics, then you know what is possible, what is plausible, and what is simply ridiculous and impossible. And so having a good foundation in physics made all the difference in the world. You know, all of biology can be explained in the language of chemistry. All of chemistry can be explained in the language of physics. But all of physics can be explained in the language of relativity, like the Big Bang, and the quantum theory, which gives us transistors and lasers and the internet. But these two, these two hands of God don't communicate with each other. They hate each other. And that's the goal. The goal is to merge these two great theories to create an equation, one inch long maybe, that would allow us to unravel the universe itself. That's the holy grail, the holy grail of science. Sounds like today's politics. We can't get the guys on both sides to talk to each other. Those, these <laughs> two guys hate each other. So, so but, but were, you the, were you the quiet guy? Were you the guy that uh, you know, always had the right answers? Were you always talking about, hey, you know, what do you think is out in space? Which one were you? I'm, I'm, I'm actually really curious. 
Well, I did a lot of reading about aliens in outer space and the fourth dimension and parallel universes and black holes. But, you know, it was so frustrating because when I went to the library and I looked up hyperspace, parallel universes, higher dimensions, I found nothing. There was nothing in the library. And I said to myself, when I grow up and I become a theoretical physicist, I'm going to write books for myself as a child. I'm going to do research and try to complete Einstein's dream, but on the side as a hobby, write for myself as a child, wondering what is possible. All these things on science fiction, all these things you see in the movies, warp drive and antimatter, are they real or is it just some Hollywood scriptwriter's imagination? So I said to myself, I'm going to write kids, I'm going to write books for children my age who were wondering what's it all about mm, got it that makes so you knew early on you were going to be a theoretical physicist you That's knew right. that so i knew at, that right at what age did you know that what age oh. was like this is what i'm gonna do the rest of my life well by uh, about sixth grade that's what i knew this this is it and you know we are all born scientists when we're born we want to know why the sun shines we want to know where we come from but then then we hit the greatest destroyer of scientists known to science the greatest destroyer of scientists is junior high school. Because in junior high school, that's when scientists made boring memorization, lists of names and facts and figures you're never going to use anyway that are totally irrelevant. Because, you know, science is based on principles, concepts physical pictures that's what drives science like evolution like mm -hmm. relativity like newton's yeah. laws not memorizing einstein's middle name that's not science at all and so that's why we lose so many people in the danger years 15 16 17 wow, those are the point. danger years when we lose millions of young kids that's powerful. Everyone's a scientist, sixth grade until junior high school, then the educational system kind of messes you up. It's more memorization than creating, testing things, see what happens. So, so that took me to two different directions. One of the things I want to talk to you about is the educational system. I'll get to that later on, but at, right now, since we're talking about your book, what uh, were you raised in a certain denomination as like, what was the meaning of God to you when your parents spoke to you about it? Well, my parents were Buddhists, and in Buddhism, there is no beginning or end. There's just timeless nirvana. But they put me in a Presbyterian Sunday school. So I grew up as a Presbyterian, learning about God and Genesis and the books of the Bible. And then I had two uh, contradictory ideas in my head. Either the universe had a beginning or it didn't. No two ways around it until now. Now we realize that our universe is a bubble of some sort. It's expanding, and that's called the Big Bang Theory. We live on the skin of this expanding bubble. But string theory, which is what I'm, I'm one of the pioneers in this theory called string theory, string theory says that there are other bubbles out there, other bubbles floating in nirvana. So in other words, our universe had a beginning, like Genesis. Our universe had a beginning, but there are other universes in a bubble bath, a bubble bath of universes. And when these universes collide or fission, that's the Big Bang. So the Big Bang is what happens when universes collide. And these universes expand in what? Nirvana. 
That's what these bubbles expand into, timeless nirvana. And so we live in an ocean of parallel universes. And then the next question you're going to ask me, I'm sure, is, is Elvis Presley still alive in a parallel universe? Of course. Of course. And the answer is probably yes, that he's probably alive in some parallel universe, belting out hit after hit, according to the quantum theory. I can't believe you're missing out on all those hits. You know, that's way too many. Good. He's probably on the same place with him, Tupac, and the rest of them that are making hits uh, for the rest of us. So, so, so you're uh, raised a Buddhist, uh, and there is no beginning, there's no end. It's just kind of like a flow. And then you go to a Presbyterian school, Genesis, you learn all this stuff. There is a beginning. And then later on, Big Bang Theory, the, the clashes of, you know, different, uh, uh, different ideas that come together. And then you have Nirvana. Okay, fine. Today, you've been around for a long time, meaning you've been debating a lot of different people. You've seen a lot of different ideas. You see a lot of different uh, theories. What is your in interpretation when you hear uh, a pastor or a preacher of their religion get up and sell their faith with the kind of conviction that they have. How do you process that? Well, I like to quote Galileo, who once said that the purpose of science is to determine how the heavens go. But the purpose of religion is to determine how to go to heaven. So in other words, science is about natural law, how the heavens go how the planets move, how the galaxy moves. But religion is about how to go to heaven. That is ethics, how to be a good person, how to obey the laws and help your neighbors. And so as long as we keep these two separate, they are complementary. The problem occurs, however, when people who are in the natural sciences pontificate about ethics or when religious people pontificate about natural law. That's where we get into trouble. But as long as we keep these two things relatively separate, they are complementary. So I don't see any contradiction between the two. Very cool. I mean, I, that's interesting to take that angle. So in, so in your eyes, you have, I think you have two kids, right? Yeah. You have two kids. So in your eyes, what do you think happens when we die? Well, the short answer is, I don't know. But you know, in my books and in my interviews with other scientists, I begin to realize that science is closing in on mortality. Genetic immortality is a possibility, and also digital immortality is a possibility. Uh, for example, uh, everything known about us can be digitized, our credit card transactions, our emails, to give an approximation of, well, who we are, our digital soul. I would love, for example, to talk to Einstein. One day, somebody will digitize him. Everything known about his writings, his interviews, his inner thoughts, his letters, one day, we will be digitized. Meaning that our digital footprint will be digitized and live forever on the internet so that we can talk to our great, 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 great grandkids and our great, 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 great grandkids can talk to us because we've been digitized and that's coming faster than you realize, Silicon Valley is already offering the capability of digitizing what is known about you now. Imagine what's going to happen in the years in the future. We'll have a very good approximation of who you are. And in that sense, we will live forever. Got it. So what a, and by the way, I fully see, I can only imagine you go to a vault and you're sitting in this vault and you have access to 
great minds to, you know, I want to interview with Einstein, have a conversation with him. I want to interview with, you know, some evil people in history to say what motivated you to want to like imagine you have a conversation with Hitler. Why'd you do what you do? What was the motivation behind it? Why are you uh, um, that would tell us a lot. And that would be very interesting to go on that angle. But do you think the opposite side? So digital immortality, I fully see that. I think it's already happening anyways. People it's are happening. creating content where even the element of documentation when I'm vlogging, that's a form of digital immortality because my great, great, great grandkids can sit there and watch me for hours and say, wow, that's my great, great, great grandfather. I can exactly. Say, do you think the, the element of like immortality itself of the flesh and the spirit, do you think, you think we're going to get to a point where with advanced medicine and technology, we can live forever? You think that's a possibility? Well, look at it this way. Why do we die? We die because of the buildup of error. Error in our DNA, errors in our cells because of chaos, the second law of thermodynamics, things rust, things fall apart, things die. But if you add energy from the outside, you can get around the second law of thermodynamics. For example, with gene therapy, we'll be able to attack aging at three levels. One is telomerase. We know that a cell has a clock. A clock, skin cells divide 60 times, and then they go into senescence, and then they die. Why? The telomeres get shorter and shorter and shorter. It's like a clock. After 60 reproductions, the cell dies. However, we have now discovered telomerase. A Nobel Prize was given for the discovery of telomerase. It stops the clock. Now, why don't we all take telomerase? You got to be careful. This is powerful stuff. You see, telomerase also is used by cancer cells. Cancer cells are also immortal. That's why they kill you, because they are immortal. And that's one way that cancer cells become immortal. So we have to control telomerase. Second, we know that if you live, uh, want to live 30% longer, eat 30% less. This has been checked on spiders, insects, uh, mammals, all the way up to uh, primates. You feed them 30% less, they live 30% longer. Why is that? Well, we're not sure because you slow down the oxidation process. And Mother Nature knows that in case of a famine, animals face famine all the time. Animals have a choice. They can either reproduce or they can gut it out and go to senescence, hibernate, whatever. And then when there's food, flourish once again. So we now have isolated the genes that control this process of gutting it out during times of famine, which of course is very common for animals. And uh, many people are looking at these enzymes which slow down metabolism because we want to live forever without having to live like a monk. We don't want to eat 30% less. We want to eat lots of food and still live longer. And that gets us into oxidation. Why do cars get old? What ages in a car? Well, it's the engine. Why the engine? Because that's where you have combustion, oxidation, wear and tear. Well, where is the engine of a cell? The mitochondria, bingo. We now know where errors build up in a cell, the mitochondria. And with gene therapy, with CRISPR technology, one day, I think that our, maybe our grandkids will hit the age of 30 and stop. They may like being 30 for many decades to come. I think that's well within the realm of possibility. Wow. 
given the rapidity with which we are now unraveling the question, why do we have to die? Listen, why couldn't you have been my teacher when I went to high school? Like, seriously, if I had you as a science teacher, I would have gone to school twice. Uh, I would have gone to school on Sundays if I had you as a school teacher. The way you're teaching is just something else. Uh, so so let's let's go there. There's a couple of things you said there. So living forever. So do you think it is a good idea for us to live forever? Or do you think it's a good idea that we have a, you know, we eventually die and we're replaced and replenished by somebody newer that comes with better ideas? you know, more creative ideas. What do you think about the idea of actually being beneficial to the world for us to eventually die? Well, there is a benefit to dying. And that is on a societal level, you don't want to stagnate. Uh, you don't want ideas that are old, crusted and obsolete to dominate young people who may think differently. So on one hand, you want to, you want to transport the wisdom you want to get the wisdom of a generation and give the next generation that wisdom of life. Because life is more complicated than any simple formula. However, sometimes people begin to get, uh, you know, old and tired, and they want the young generation to be just as old and tired as they are. And that's not a good idea. That will cause stagnation. That's why I say that in the future, when people live forever or live very long, when they hit the age of 30, that's a good age to stop because you're still young enough to have vibrant ideas, but you still Got have it. the wisdom, the wisdom of the first 30 years of your life. So I think if and when we have the ability to stop aging, that is stop the second law of thermodynamics, then 30 is a good age to live <laughs> forever. Okay, I get what you're saying. So if I can get to a certain age and just stop and be 30 for the next 200 years, that's kind of cool to stay 30 for 200 more years. That's uh, right. You can yeah. still look at new kinds of music and new kinds of crazy, yeah. bizarre ideas with the wisdom of the past. That makes sense. And, but you're still open to it. You're like, okay, this is cool. I can get used. I can still adjust to new direction. Oh, now we're using the internet. I can adjust to. No, now we're using Netflix. I can adjust to. The lifestyles also changes versus no, this is how it's been for a long time and I'm not willing to pivot nor adjust to it. A question for you about movies. So a lot of movies we watch over the years, uh, and, and the first time we watch it, we're like, there's no way in the world that's gonna happen. It's just not gonna happen. That's impossible. That's pretty cool to sit there and think about the idea. That's you know, kind of cool. You know, that's, that's pretty intense to see something like that. You know, and then, you know, for example, I don't know if you've seen the movie, Benjamin Button. If you've seen the movie, Benjamin Button, he is aging backwards, which is pretty crazy, right? Or even the movie Age of Adeline. I don't know if you've seen the movie Age of Adeline. I've seen both. I've mm -hmm. seen Age of Adeline. I go to one scene in Age of Adeline, and I've probably seen that scene. I'm not even kidding with you. It's my wife thinks I'm crazy. Probably two or 300 times. It's the scene where Adeline walks in, and she's dating her his son, and she turns around and looks at him. It's like, Adeline. And then she doesn't know how to answer. And it's the mom. You know which scene I'm talking about. It's in the house when that scene takes place. But she gets struck by lightning due to a car crash. And she can't age. And the way she started aging again is when she got struck in lightning because of the second car accident, she started aging because she got a gray hair. So she was celebrating getting a gray hair because that means immortality is not an effect for her. Or even back to the future where we can go on a time machine, right? How many of these movies that come out with these ideas are accidental ideas because somebody was smoking the right, you know, pot or they were on LSD or they were being delusional and let me write about this, this be kind of cool. And how much of this is 
a visionary envisioning a future that maybe the rest of the world hasn't yet envisioned and it's just an imagination. Is it accidental or is it something that's actually uh, something someone believes that's gonna happen? Well, when I saw that movie with Adeline, I was very curious about exactly how a lightning bolt would make her immortal. And the narrator actually lays out a scenario. I followed, I followed the gobbledygook, I followed the reasoning, and they said that the lightning bolt changed her biochemistry. And the genes, the genes that control the aging process were altered by the lightning bolt. And it lays out a scenario where biochemistry, biochemistry is at the root of immortality. Now, look at it this way. Why do we have to die? Look at the Greenland shark. The Greenland shark lives to be about 500 years of age. Um, we know that because just like tree rings, you can look at the eyeball of the fish, count the rings, and calculate the age of these uh, fish, and they are between 400 to 500 years of age. So in other words, why do we have to die? In the Arctic, where these uh, fish are, uh, metabolism is much slower. And slower metabolism means air is built up slower. And again, that's what aging is, the buildup of genetic and cellular mistakes. They build up, cells get sluggish, they eventually die as a consequence. But with gene therapy, perhaps we can reverse that aging process, correct the mistakes. And that's where the Adeline movie comes in, a lightning bolt did it in the movie. Maybe we can do it using biochemistry in the laboratory. So this is something that we should think about. It's not for us, we're not there yet, but we have tantalizing clues as to the mechanism of how aging takes place. In cells, in worms, for example, we can actually double their lifespan. And as I mentioned, you can take any animal up to humans and make them live 30% longer. Now, this has not been tested in humans, by the way. It's been tested in dogs, cats, primates. You eat 30% less, you live 30% longer. Why hasn't it been tested in humans? Well, <laughs> let's be blunt. Humans bellyache too much. If they don't like something, they sue you. And who wants to be sued? So in other words, it'll be a while before we test humans by having them eat 30% less. So that, that's age of Adeline. You're right. The humans sue humans. I have not seen too many dogs suing dogs. And that, that's, uh, I think that's a scientific statement right there. But so Benjamin Button, fake. Can that happen? Can somebody age backwards? You know, and then back to the future. What, what, why are we waiting so long to come up with this time machine? Why can't we have it already? Well, aging backwards would violate the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics says that in a closed system, things decay, things get older, things fall apart, things die. The key word is closed. In a closed system, things naturally get older. In an open system, like you have sunlight, energy from the sun, that can reverse the process. That's how evolution takes place. Evolution should violate the second law of thermodynamics. People get, uh, I mean, if you take a look at human evolution, we got smarter, we got more adapted to the environment. Why? Because we had extra energy from the outside, sunlight. Now that open system could be biochemistry. 
And so biochemists, you could replace sunlight and speed up this process. Instead of waiting millions of years for evolution to catch up, we may be able to do it in one generation. Now, time travel, that's something that we physicists actually look into. And we realize that if you have a wormhole, there is a theory that you can go backwards in time. Now, in 1935, it was Einstein himself who postulated the existence of wormholes that I mentioned in my book, The God Equation. If I have two universes parallel to each other and I create a bridge, a bridge between these two universes, then you fall into one and go into the other. Now, the energy to do this is the energy of a black hole. So in other words, if there's a white hole, a white hole on the other end of a black hole, it means that you can fall in and fall out someplace else in the universe. Now, this, of course, raises paradoxes. What happens if you go backwards in time and commit suicide? That is, you kill yourself as a young child, then how can you live if you just killed yourself as a young child? Well, there's a way around it. And in quantum mechanics, there's something called the many worlds theory, that every time a measurement is made, the universe splits in half and keeps on splitting every time there's a, an observation being made. And so maybe when you go backwards in time, the river of time forks into two rivers. So if you go to backwards in time to save Abraham Lincoln from being mm. assassinated at the Ford Theater, you've saved somebody else's Abraham Lincoln. Your Abraham Lincoln and your river of time died with an assassin's bullet. That cannot be changed. But the river of time splits and forks, and you've saved another universe's Abraham Lincoln from being assassinated. That is what we physicists think is a possible resolution of all time travel paradoxes. The river of time forks. That's some deep stuff. I feel like I'm high right now just listening to you. But by the way, what are your thoughts on drugs and, and, and uh, you know, LSD and, and, you know, taking certain drugs, uh, scientists to see the world from a different element you know you hear the stories about steve jobs or was tested with lsd a little bit just to kind of get his brain a little bit more creative what are your thoughts about uh, certain drugs helping see the world from a different lens that others don't see well one downside is addiction and addiction will eventually kill you because you get addicted to a drug that interferes with the biochemistry of the body uh, drugs that are mild, like marijuana, we can go back and forth, back and forth, looking at the data. But hard drugs will mess up the brain and create an alternate reality. So people who are creative, artists and writers and people who make their living being imaginative, I can see why they would want to do it. But the pitfall is it could control you to the point that you get addicted and you're a slave. You become a slave to this yeah. drug, creating the drug industry, which is a multi-billion dollar industry, which paralyzes whole governments. Whole governments in Latin America are paralyzed because of the drug cartel, which makes money on people getting high. And so I think that there's a downside to this as well. Yeah, that's that's a very, uh, have, you ever, have you ever been curious about testing your own brain? Like, have you yourself gone and wanted to do MRIs and to study the difference between, I had, uh, who's the guest I had on who was a uh, brain, uh, um, uh, uh, Daniel, Dr. Daniel uh, uh, Amen. Amen, Dr. Daniel Amen, I brought him on and he said, 
he has done, I don't know how many MRIs on the brain, you know, 175,000, some major number that he gave, and he's looked at so many different things. Do you think there is a way to look at someone's brain to say this person's brain vibrates at a different level with ideas, the coloring, all that other stuff? Have you investigated that at all or no? Well, I've had my brain scanned several times. Uh, I posted a few documentaries for BBC television, and they flew me down to North Carolina, where they have one of the, the finest MRI machines. And uh, you can actually see thoughts as they emerge in the brain. You can actually see centers of the brain light up like a Christmas tree. And so many of the secrets of the brain are being revealed. For example, the back of the brain is the so-called reptilian brain. It's the brain of hunger, balance, aggression, the brain that a snake would have in the back of the brain or an alligator. The center of the brain is more or less the monkey brain, the limbic brain, the brain of social structures. That is the brain of how to defer to your elders, how to be kind to people, the, the brain that involves pack mentality. That's the center of the brain. And then the question is, what are we? What separates us from the animals? What separates us from the animals is the front of the brain, the prefrontal cortex. And so what does it do? What separates us from the animals? The front of the brain is a time machine. It daydreams. It constantly conjures up images of imagined futures. For example, let's do an experiment. Go home tonight and talk to your dog and teach your dog the meaning of tomorrow. Very simple. Teach your dog the meaning of tomorrow. You can't. It's impossible because animals live in the present. Their prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. They don't imagine the future. And that's what separates humans from animals. We live in the future. Brain scans constantly show that when somebody is daydreaming about the future, they're actually accessing the past, past memories, and then altering it to create alternate futures. That's how we recall images. If you brain scan an animal, you find out that they don't think about the past. They don't think about the future. They only think about the present. So that's what separates humans from animals. Humans live in the future. We constantly daydream, plot, scheme. We're constantly thinking, what can I do? What does that mean? Why is he saying this? We're constantly thinking about gossip, about alternate futures. What if I did? What if I? What if I did this? What if I did that? That's called humanity. That's why we differ from the animals. Because if you read the mind of an animal, all they're worried about is where's lunch, where's dinner. That's pretty much it when you brain scan an animal. No wonder they're so happy. Well, maybe Chihuahuas are pissed off because maybe Chihuahuas do see the future. I don't know. I mean, there's a. Uh... Certain dogs that have a pretty terrible temper, they're not happy about anything. But yeah, I can see that. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, look, you know, we've covered a lot of things here. Let's go kind of to uh, the next part here. We can talk about aliens and extraterrestrial, you know, terrestrial. Um, you saw a lot of things have been coming up lately. Well, you know, the, the, we found that there was, you know, connection and contact with another uh, uh, I think it was about a year and a half ago or a year ago where we saw a video where the pilot is talking about, I was like, wait a minute, what is this all about? And then something came about a week ago or maybe even two weeks ago. I think we're at a point where people are not disputing that there is life out there 
uh, uh, in the uh, you know outer space. There is life out there in the outer space. But I guess the question I would have for you would be the following. Area 51 used to be a myth. It's no longer a myth. It's, you know, it's people kind of know about it. They're going out there, you know, sitting outside and kind of making videos. Do you think, because we don't know much about aliens, we believe they exist. We've seen images. We've seen images in movies. We've been told they exist. And we're at a point that we believe it. Do you think aliens know about our existence and are they watching us or are they just as oblivious as we are about them as they are about us? Well, I get a lot of emails and some of them say, Professor, you're wrong. You're totally wrong. The aliens are not there. The aliens are here. They're among us. And how do they know? These people claim that they've been kidnapped. They've been kidnapped by aliens and they've been in the flying saucers. So I have a word of advice. The next time you are kidnapped by a flying saucer, for God's sake, steal something. Steal an alien chip, an alien pencil, an alien paperweight. Steal something because there's no law against stealing from an extraterrestrial <laughs> civilization. You're not going to go to jail. Where's the law that says you can't steal from an alien civilization? And then you'll have bragging rights. That'll end the debate right then and there, period. End of story, end of debate. You have an alien chip that proves that you've been in that flying saucer. Now, when you're walking down a forest and you meet a squirrel, do you go down to the squirrels and talk to it? Well, maybe initially, hey, hi, squirrel. But eventually you get bored because the squirrel has nothing to say to you. I mean, it's boring talking to a squirrel. <laughs> They have nothing to add, no insights, no funny stories, nothing. They just run away for the next acorn. So if we are the squirrels and aliens from outer space land on the earth, what do we have to offer them? Shakespeare? Well, maybe they don't <clears throat> understand English. What do we have to offer them? Gold? Gold means nothing to them. In fact, gold is rather a useless metal for an advanced civilization. What do they want? To eat us? We're not going to be made out of the same DNA. They're not going to want to eat us or mate with us or do anything with our genome. We're totally different from them. So I think for the most part, they'll leave us alone. They'll say, oh, nice squirrel, and leave us alone. So... In other, words, in other words, you're saying that if they did know about us, they would leave us alone? Are you saying, so first of all, let me just kind of set the tone here with this part. You do believe that aliens do exist. That's a check, right? Yeah, that's a check. Yeah. Okay. So that's a check. Okay. So do you believe, because you've also said in the past that it's probably not a good idea to wake them up, just like Cortez, you know, was going against, you know, you, you don't want to let the enemy know that you... Uh, uh, are out there it's better for you to stay quiet and not make a lot of noise and not let them know about you are you saying that because you don't believe they know of our existence yet well put it this way um there's a group called the Mehdi project which deliberately deliberately sends signals into outer space saying here we are here's what we like this is what we can do and visit us sometime i think that's a bad idea because we don't know what their intentions are. 
maybe they've been scanning us. Maybe they know pretty much where what our technological development level is. They know a lot about us, our language, our culture. They're pretty advanced. But for the most part, we're not interesting to them. But one day, if we advertise our existence and reveal how much we have, resources, minerals, perhaps things that are of value to an alien civilization, then just like was mentioned, Cortez, well, Montezuma thought that Cortez was a god. Big mistake, one of the biggest mistakes in history. Cortez was a pirate. He was a bloodthirsty pirate, but what did he have? He had steel, while the Aztecs had bronze. He had the horse, the Aztecs had no horse. Cortez had the written language. The Aztecs had no written language. And Cortez had smallpox. And that, of course, devastated the population. So I think for the most part, it's a bad idea to advertise our existence to aliens in outer space. In other words, maybe we're off the radar. Let's keep it that way for a while. Do you believe we are off the radar? Do you, do you believe we're off their radar right now? Well, I think aliens probably have more important things to worry about, because if you are a, uh, a person walking in a forest, there are lots of forest animals out there. Some forest animals are probably more interesting than squirrels. And so I think there's a lot more interesting things for them to be preoccupied with. Got and so, so I think for the most part, we should lie low. But I think they're out there. You know, we've analyzed 4,000 planets so far, 4,000 uh, of which roughly 20% seem to be Earth-like. Now that expanded to the galaxy means that there are billions, billions of Earth-like planets, maybe a little bit bigger than the Earth, but billions of Earth-like planets out there. To assume that we're the only one, I think, is the height of arrogance. I, I agree. I, it's naive or, or arrogant. By the way, when you said Cortez had smallpox, did you mean he used the smallpox you, to kill his enemy? Well, the, the conquistadors, we don't know which conquistador brought smallpox. But we know the conquistadors brought diseases to the new world and the the aztecs had no no immune system no defense against these so it wasn't cortez personally it was the conquistadors that brought smallpox to the new world as a use of a weapon or accidental they had it and they just brought it and it spread probably accidental okay got it makes sense so it wasn't like an intentional thing that they did okay so so do you think there's a twin of Earth out there in the world that maybe 2,000 years ahead of us or 5,000 years ahead of us or 1,000 years behind us? Do you think there's a, there could be a possibility of twin of an Earth? I think there are probably doppelgangers out there that are just like the planet Earth, and they could be millions of years ahead of us. Now, many of my friends, you know, they're all physicists. When you talk aliens to them, their eyes kind of like roll up into the heavens and they start to shake their heads. That's the giggle factor that whenever you talk to them about that. And why do they giggle? They say the distance between stars is so great. It would take hundreds, thousands of years for them to reach us. But you see, that assumes they are 100 years ahead of us. And of course, 100 years ahead of us, a civilization like that cannot reach the Earth. But for the moment, Think of what could happen if they are a million years ahead of us. If they are a million years ahead of us, and our science is only 300 years old, 300 years ago, we lived in witchcraft, sorcery, magic. That's where we were 300 years ago. If they're a million years ahead of us, which is a blink of an eye, a blink of an eye, because the universe is 13.8 billion years old, 
then think that their understanding of the laws of physics would be completely different from our understanding of the laws of physics. You see, our understanding of the laws of physics break down. Break down at the instant of creation, the Big Bang, and the center of a black hole. We don't know anything about the center of a black hole or the instant of creation. New laws of physics open up, perhaps wormholes, gateways that allow us to go faster than the speed of light. And so get rid of all your prejudices that they can't reach us because they're, they're only 100 years ahead of us. If they're a million years ahead of us, new laws of physics begin to open up. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around if there's a doppelganger, say it's a twin of ours, and they're a million years, years ahead of us, and they have feelings, emotions, opinions, they're thinking about the future and the past, there's probably going to be opposing beliefs, religions, technology, advancements, power, the, the temptation of wanting to rule the world and all that other stuff. I, 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 don't, I don't know about that because, and here, here's kind of what, again, I may be wrong, I'm not a theoretical physicist. But uh, do you think the way we're going right now, we can exist a thousand years from now, two thousand years from now, four thousand years from? Now? The reason why I'm asking this question is, one is from the advancement standpoint, okay, on how much we're advancing, right? It seems like right now, we're the level of acceleration of advancement is about to go in a different gear. We're about to downshift second gear, and it's gonna go. And I think the separation is going to be further than ever before. Uh, some are just going to get way ahead. I mean, you're starting to see the, the level of wealth that's being made. You got Musk at what, cup 100 billion right now. One day he's 140, one day he's 160. You got Bezos, cup 100. And then you have technology, things that NFT, people still don't even know what an NFT is. People still don't even know what a Bitcoin is. People are still trying to learn what the hell is going on. And at the same time, we are wanting to be important. And I'm important. Look at me. I'm smart. I'm wealthy. I'm powerful. I'm a politician. Do you think we can be around a thousand years from now without somebody finally saying, screw all of you, I'm going to pull the plug, boom, it's over with? Well, we physicists have actually tried to describe civilization thousands, millions of years ahead of us, and we categorize them by energy. A type one civilization is a civilization that controls planetary power. They control the weather earthquakes, volcanoes, they can modify them. Anything earthbound, they have the energy to control. That's type one. Type two civilization controls the energy of the sun directly. They harness the solar flares. They energize the entire solar system because they control the sun. That's type two. Type three is galactic. They roam the galactic space lanes. They've colonized the entire galaxy black holes, stars, supernovas, they roam the entire galaxy. Now on this scale of energy, what are we? Are we type one that control the weather, volcanoes, earthquakes? Are we type two that control solar flares and the energy of the entire sun? Are we type three that roam the galactic space lanes? No, we're type zero. We get our energy from oil and coal, that's dead plants. We're type zero. But we are about 100 years from becoming type one. That's what all the headlines are about. What is the internet? The internet is the first type one technology to fall into this century. It is a planetary technology, the internet. What about the language of type one? 
Well, on the internet already, English and Mandarin Chinese are the two most popular languages on the internet. What about culture? We're seeing the beginning of planetary sports with the Olympics and with soccer. We see the beginning of a planetary music, youth culture, youth music, rap music, rock and roll. We're seeing the beginning of a type one culture in fashion, Gucci, Chanel. So we're beginning to see the beginning of a type one civilization right in front of us. But that's the danger. The most dangerous transition is between type zero to type one. Why? Because if we're type zero, we have all the savagery, all the brutality of our past. We came from the swamp just 300 years ago. 300 years ago, there was only magic, superstition, inquisitions, torture. That's the way it was just 300 years ago. And now we're headed toward type one. Every time I open the newspaper, I see the beginning of the birth of a type one civilization, a planetary civilization. Look at the pandemic. It's a planetary pandemic, but how do we deal with it? Globally, globally we did it and we're conquering it now. That was impossible just a hundred years ago during the 1918 Spanish flu outbreak. Now we can actually control outbreaks like this. So we're seeing the birth of a type one civilization, but it's dangerous because we now have nuclear weapons. We have the ability to create designer germs. We have the ability to alter the weather with global warming. Yep. So it's not clear whether we're gonna make the transition from type zero to type one, but this is the greatest transition in human history. We are privileged to be alive to see this transition from type zero to type one. So, so from, from your research, from I don't if you've done or if you haven't done, what was uh, uh, Hitler's reasoning for having the level of hate that he had? From your well, research, from what you read, why, why did he have that kind of hate for a, a, a different or, you know, Jews or whatever, you know, the level of hate he had for them? Well, you see, before we become type one, we have all the savagery of type zero. We came from the swamp. Think about it. Think of what life was like just a few hundred years ago. A life expectancy, for example, something as simple as that, was 30 years of age for most of human history. We lived in a savage, barbaric past, uh, just struggling to stay alive. And of course, having enemies was a very convenient way to keep the masses ha ha happy and contented. Look at the Roman Empire. Many attempts were made to try to create a civilization, but they all failed. Why did they fail? Because there was not enough wealth to go around. Poverty, sickness, disease. But now we have the Industrial Revolution, the Electric Revolution, the Computer Revolution, giving us enough wealth that we don't have to constantly fight for it. And the question is, can we negotiate this transition to type one? If we can, we're talking yeah. about an age of Aquarius. By the time we're type two, by the way, we are immortal. No, nothing known to science can destroy a type two civilization. Meteors can be deflected, asteroids can be blown up, weather can be modified, no more global warming problems. Even the sun, even if the sun explodes, they can leave the sun and colonize another star system. So by the time you're type two, you are immortal. The danger is, the most dangerous period is between type zero to type one, because we still have all the savagery of the past. Yeah, I asked that question because look, right now, uh, 
46 is one click away from sending uh, nuclear bombs all over all over the world if you wanted to there's that much power behind a president right you got a putin in Ru russia that's got the same kind of capabilities if somebody upsets him and we know if that happens there's a uh, domino effect right boom 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 wait what did you do you're going to retaliate we have to retaliate and then it's going to be insanity right that's going to go back and forth so the reason why I asked the Hitler question is because what prevents, and again, this whole topic is about there's another mm -hmm. doppelganger, you know, another civilization around the, you know, space that's like the earth, that's, you said, maybe a million years ahead of us. As long as there's emotion and there's ego where someone can be offended, don't you think there's a likelihood that someone could pull the plug with the level of access to explosives that we have today? whether it's a virus, whether it's biochemical warfare, whether it's whatever else may be, to just finish everything up and boom, we have to start all over again? Well, there's a note of optimism here. Uh, first of all, realize that I think that technology has a moral direction. Now that differs from what most scientists believe. Most scientists believe that technology is neutral. A sword could either cut against you or cut with you. It's that science is a double-edged sword. But I tend to disagree. I think that technology has a moral direction because the internet spreads information and it creates empowerment. Information is power, power to liberate yourself from dictatorships and oppression. In other words, it creates democracy. We have a wave of dem democratic movements around the world now. When I was a kid, there was an expression called dictator for life. If you were a dictator under the wing of Russia or the United States, they couldn't get rid of you. You were a dictator for life. Now we laugh at that. What? Dictator for life? You're kidding. People can organize. They can educate themselves. They can arm themselves with knowledge. So the big winner is democracy. Now they're going to be back. They're going to be backsliding. There's going to be problems. But in the main, the internet spreads empowerment. Empowerment means more democracy, and democracies are more stable than dictatorships. Dictatorships on a whim can start a war. Democracies, it's very difficult to start a war in a democracy because you have widows, you have veterans, all these people with access to the media that may not want a war. And so I think that there are checks and balances. So I think that the smallest unit of history is the decade. Anything smaller than a decade, you get random fluctuations. And if you look at history, decade by decade, think of where we were in the year 1900. It was a horrible year, 1900, with kings and queens and empires, the Austro-Hungarian Empire fighting the Prussian Empire, fighting the all these empires fighting each other. 1900 was not a very pleasant year to live in. And of course, that gave birth to World War I. Now think of what we have today. Sure, we have nuclear weapons, but we have empowerment taking place with a middle class, with access to the means to get information instantly anywhere on the planet Earth. I think that is a good trend. I mean, look, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist and I'm leaning towards you, but I'm also a uh, guy that uh, subscribes to what Andy, Andy Grove years ago, the former CEO of Intel, who wrote the book, Only the Paranoid Survive. I think there's got to be an element of paranoia to make sure we can prevent madness from taking place. And when you're saying information and social media and, you know, Internet, what it's doing, 
how it's leaning towards democracy. Do you think it is a, a good idea to constantly permit for opposing ideas to clash? And, you know, these, these virtual governments have a lot of power today. The Twitters, the Facebooks, the YouTubes of the world, they have a lot of power today. Do you think it's a bad idea? Let me say ask the question a different way. Do you think it's a bad idea to prevent from opposing ideas to clash, even though you may disagree with them? Well, I think that correct ideas emerge from struggle with incorrect ideas. Uh, ideas have to clash with each other. And if it means that some crazy ideas are out there, well, so be it. You know, this is the Wild West. The internet is young. I mean, think of technology. We've had cars since uh, the last century. Uh, we've had trains since the 1800s. Uh, the internet is a young technology. And as a consequence, you have people who harangue others, noisy people, people that want to beat their chest on the internet, say all sorts of crazy things. But eventually, people will tune them out. Eventually, people will mature. Because why give these people a platform? Because of free, free speech, but you just can turn them off as well. Because people have to mature. And I think that when people mature, that's when the tone of the internet is going to change from the Wild West to something that it that it wants wisdom wisdom is what we need on the internet not haranguing but wisdom and i think that that wisdom comes from struggle with incorrect ideas and it does mean that there's going to I be agree. a wild west for a while until people people get mature and simply tune out these crazy ideas because they say well that's nonsense but that takes a while so the so internet is still very young I, I agree. I mean, the internet's what, 20, 30, 40 years old, depending on when you start the internet, you know, you kind of pick the time that it started. So, so for you, the idea of silencing a figure like a Trump is not a good idea. You got to let him be on there and say what he's saying, whether you like him or not, but to, because, you know, Sanders, and the reason why I'm asking this question is because, again, I'm going back to events, to what really irritated a guy named Adolf, that he wanted to Flat. I mean, he was one war away, Siberia. He was getting close and Churchill. If there's not a Churchill, you and I may be speaking German today. So what do we have to do from not offending the wrong person where their motives comes out to want to do something bigger to retaliate towards a potential civilization? So for you, we ought to allow people of opposing ideas to not be banned on social media, Twitter, Facebook, whoever they may be, because people will eventually become wiser and do, they'll tune those ideas out? Well, I think you have to let unpopular ideas uh, out there because once people have grievances, they act on these grievances. And there's a, a social movement behind many of these ideas. And if you bottle it up, it comes back in a more hideous form. And so I think that it's short-sighted. It's short-sighted to simply say we can tune out certain ideas just because uh, we don't like these ideas. I think it's a bad idea. I, I'm it's totally, I'm totally with you. I'm, I'm, I'm on the same page with you. I, I, I learn through debate. I learn through discourse. I learn through argument. I learn through seeing people arguing, they debate, going back and forth. Because you're sitting there saying, "Never thought I would agree with him." Huh? That was an interesting point. Really? Wow. Never had it from that point of view. And we're getting better there. Versus if I just only hear from one side. You're not, your argument is not getting any stronger. Final thoughts here before we wrap up. Uh, I've had a fascinating time listening to you. Your mind is just so interesting to me to want to hear what you have to say. 
If Elon Musk were to get his rocket ready today, would you consider moving to Mars with him? Well, I'm a scientist, and we realize that uh, rocket failure takes place roughly 1% of the time. Uh, take a look at the space shuttle. We had 200 or so missions of the space shuttle. How many of them blew up? Two. That's exactly 1% of the time. And so people who are astronauts, in the old days, they were pilots, Air Force pilots. They knew that every time they got into that capsule, there was a probability they're not going to come back. But then we began to think of space travel as being like a Sunday picnic. That, I think, was not a good idea because reality catches up with you. That 1% of the time catches up with you. So when Elon Musk recently said that he expects some people to die on the mission to Mars, I think he's preparing the world public, preparing them for the possibility that, yes, some people may die, but don't have a backlash against the space program. You know, when this shuttle blew up and seven brave astronauts died on national television, there was a backlash, a backlash against the space program. We don't want that backlash. We want people to be honest. Space travel to Mars is not a Sunday picnic. The mission will take two years, nine months to get there, nine months to get back, and a few months to do experiments two years but the world's record for being in and out of space is only one year so we're talking about busting a whole bunch of records sending humans to mars i think we can do it i think we should do it because the dinosaurs did not have a space program and that's why there are no dinosaurs in this room right now because they didn't have a space program we do but they're going to be pitfalls. And I think Elon Musk is right, priming the people, telling them that, yes, the mission to Mars, they're going to be heroes, heroines, but some of them will not make it back. How long before we have civilization on Mars? What do you think? Well, sometime after 2030, we expect to have the first uh, piloted crewed, mi crewed mission to the Red Planet. And I don't think we should bankrupt the Earth to create a settlement on Mars. But I think a settlement on Mars should be self sustaining. So it's not a financial drain on the planet Earth, meaning that they should have agriculture, mining, robots, in order to create a self-sustaining colony on the red planet. And that is well within our capability. When's the last time we had a scientist as a president? I'm curious. When's the last time we had a scientist uh, as a president of America? I think the closest we came was actually Benjamin Franklin, Benjamin Franklin actually made uh, scientific history with his kite experiments and many of his breakthroughs. Uh, but I don't think we've ever come close to having a scientist as president. Do you think, do you think the next phase is going to be us valuing the brain of a scientist to want to run the nation rather than a brain of a lawyer, military, entrepreneur, businessman? Well, you know, there's a danger having lawyers and po professional politicians run the government because the question is, where does wealth come from? Uh, to a politician, wealth comes from taxes. <laughs> you rob Peter to pay Paul. To an economist, you print money. But you see, that's simply robbing other people to pay for your debts. I say wealth comes from science and technology, from the Industrial Revolution to the Electric Revolution to the Computer Revolution of today. It's science that generates the wealth that then is divided up by politicians who debate and slice the pie smaller and smaller and smaller. I say we need a bigger pie. 
instead of struggling with this slice of the pie saying, we want a bigger share, your share has to be smaller, we want to tax this and, and put the tax money over there, I think we need a bigger pie. And where does that bigger pie come from? Science and technology. So and who so makes it? The young. That's why it's so important that we instill this love of science in the next generation. I love this. So, so Basil, so if, uh, Musk could be a president in U.S., you think he would make a good president? Well, gee, uh, to be a president, you have to have the temperament of uh, a horse trading, uh, compromise. And uh, if you're a trailblazing entrepreneur, you don't want to compromise too much. <laughs> you want it now, right? So I think Fair that, enough. well, there's a benefit to having a politician who knows how to trade horses uh, because it takes um, a certain amount of, uh, of back and forth to become a politician. I got to tell you, I've really enjoyed it. I appreciate you for coming on and being a guest on Value Tainment. Folks, we're going to put the link to his book below to go to Amazon and order this book uh, 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 that, that just came out on. Again, let me remember the date. April 6th, I want to say. Yes, is it April 6th that just came out? That's already a New York Times bestseller, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. Click on the link below to go order the book. Doc, once again, thank you for your time. Okay, my pleasure. Great honor. Probably one of my top 15 conversations I've ever had on Value Tainment. I know it sounds weird, but I was just mesmerized by the topics we discussed, right? Uh, uh, you, uh, what is it? Digital immortality. I mean, digital immortality, which I understand in immortality formulas, 30% less, 30% longer lifespan, you know, how level zero to one and at level two, just so many things that leaves for arguments and debates and wanting to learn more. So I want to hear your thoughts. What was it that you took away from the interview? And if you enjoyed this interview, I also did an interview like this with Dr. Stephen Greer, who we talked about UFOs. He had an experience with a UFO that if you've never watched it before and you like this topic, I think you'll enjoy that interview as well. Click over here and watch that interview. With that being said, have a great day, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.